Let's set the scene. Dublin in the 1760s was a busy place, cosmopolitan, rapidly expanding, smaller than London or Naples, certainly, but actually bigger than Berlin, say, at this stage. Those with money to spare, imported quality goods, attracted craftspeople and artists from across Europe, while stage performers were drawn to Dublin's theatres and concert life. Of all of these, the rarest, most prized and expensive commodity was a special kind of singer, politely referred to as a musico, the name for a man whose body had been effectively sacrificed to music. The word we use now, and the one used then behind their backs, is more descriptive, castrato. Giusto Ferdinando Tanducci was one such singer, born and raised in Italy. By 1765, he'd already been in London for several years. He was all the rage, and now he was crossing the Irish Sea. To introduce him, here's how he appears in one fictional account of the time. There I heard the famous Tanducci, a ping from Italy. It looks for all the world like a man, though they say it is not. The voice, to be sure, is neither man's nor woman's, but it is more melodious than either, and it warbled so divinely that while I listened, I really thought myself in paradise. A thing from Italy. That description of Tenducci singing at the fashionable Renler Pleasure Gardens in London was from The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker, a comic novel by Tobias Smollett. Reading it, we heard Alison Fitzgerald, who's a historian of this period, and I asked her how Tenducci's appearance in Dublin would have fitted into the wider urban culture of this time. The 18th century is fundamentally associated with the commercialisation of leisure. And Tenducci moved to Dublin in 1765, and the Society of Artists had been established in the city the previous year. And then, between 1766 and 1771, the first purpose-built public art gallery was constructed on their behalf in South William Street, which is now the headquarters of the Irish Georgian Society. So Tenducci's performances would have taken their place in a much wider social round of theatre and assemblies and visits to pleasure gardens and art exhibitions, and also the temporary commercial shows which vied with one another in cities like London and Dublin. And these could range from the extraordinary mechanical wonders like James Cox's Museum of Automata to displays of popular science or exotic animals. And this period is also associated with the first really widespread use of printed advertising. So the Dublin newspapers carry multiple references to Tenducci's Irish performances. As an example, in 1763, the Dublin Courier published a favourite ballad for French horns, clarinets and bassoons set to music by Mr Tenducci. And the paper also reproduced the words of songs composed by Tenducci, which were sung at London's Ranelagh Gardens. Tenducci's fame wasn't limited to consumers of print culture either. One of his most popular pieces was the much-loved lament, Water Parted from the Sea. 
It comes from the third act of Thomas Arne's English opera Artaxerxes, which Tenducci introduced to Irish audiences. He'd helped launch this opera in London back in 1762, singing the role of Arbaces, and it became a bit of a calling card for him, this air in particular. Within just a few years, you could have heard children in the Dublin streets singing Tenducci was a piper's son, and he was in love when he was young, and all the tunes that he could play was water parted from the say, sung to the tune of Over the Hills and Far Away, one song satirising another. And well, this is what Tenducci actually sang. That recording, and indeed all the music we're listening to over the next hour, comes from The Trials of Tenducci, an album released by the Irish Baroque Orchestra in March 2021 with mezzo-soprano Tara Erocht. I spoke to IBO Artistic Director Peter Whelan about Tenducci and about his music, reflecting on Arne's Artaxerxes and especially Water Parted from the Sea, the conversation quickly shifts to its wider impact on other singers, notably Michael Kelly, and we discover something unusual about Tenducci's subsequent reputation in Ireland. I find that really interesting, especially in terms of what effect it had on Irish audiences, the Artaxerxes. Well, number one, you have the, the, the melody, um, Water Parted from the Sea, which is famously... Um, well, not famously, but it, it was it was it was sung by the the urchins in the streets in Dublin. They had their own version of that where they they lampooned it, and but that stayed in 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 kind of Dublin folklore all the way up to James Joyce and Finnegan's Wake. Um, 
So it's, it's in the in consciousness of the city. He really had this, this big effect. But I also found it very interesting that the young Michael Kelly, who's later um, a tenor for, 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 for Mozart and a, and a, a friend of Mozart of, of sorts, that this piece clearly really influenced him as well because he boasts early in his book. There's plenty of boasting in his reminiscences, but um, he, he talks about having stepped in to sing the, the role of um, Arbaches and, and singing the, the, the two Aries that, that appear on, on the CD and how they were considered by far the most difficult thing anybody could ever sing. Um, he, strangely enough in his reminiscences, he doesn't mention Tenducci at all in person and he mentions almost everybody else who passed through the city all of the greats and people far less important than Tenducci and I often wonder why that might have been maybe it was when he was writing it there were still enough people who'd be embarrassed by the story maybe he was friends in some level with the Monsels or it was just considered a disgrace what happened so he had to kind of um, scribble his name out of the out of the copy books not to embarrass anybody in in Ireland at the time but I, I, I find that a little bit strange that he suddenly disappears from public knowledge for well at least during 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 um, Michael Kelly's time what you might ask is going on here what embarrassment who are these monsels that Michael Kelly was apparently trying not to offend as Helen Berry describes it in her book the castrato and his wife within a year of arriving in Dublin Giusto Tenducci made the unlikely step of marrying a talented young Irish girl, Dorothea Monsell, to whom he'd been giving singing lessons. No doubt it was felt perfectly safe for her to be left alone to study music with such a man. Even at her tender age, she was only 15 at the time. Dorothea's father was Thomas Monsell, a barrister, with a townhouse on fashionable Molesworth Street, who was also the Chief Justice of County Cork, a very respectable figure in Anglo-Irish society. Dorothea's life would have been mapped out for her, including, presumably, her future family life. And it seems that such a conversation must have been had, as evidently the prospect of marriage to one of her father's associates had filled her with dread. So instead... In a plot twist worthy of a comic opera, she eloped with Tenducci in the summer of 1766. We don't know whose idea it was. Having directed him to where and when they should meet, together they fled the Monsell family estate in County Limerick. They secretly married in Cork at the house of an elderly Catholic priest, a father Patrick Egan. Once the news got out, of course, it was all over the papers. The most shocking aspect of this case for us now would, of course, be Dorothea's very young age. But we should note that, at the time, that wasn't seen as a problem. The legal age for girls to marry was as young as 12 back then, 14 for boys, though by the 1760s marriages that young were certainly unusual. Instead, the scandal centred on religion class, celebrity, and, not to put too fine a point on it, physicality. He might have been an international star, but Tenducci was, in this context, a servant, raised in poverty, a Catholic, and, as we've heard, he was considered 
only half a man. What kind of a marriage could this be? Then there was the fact that the girl had defied her family's wishes. Predictably, Justice Maunsell considered it an abduction and sent men out to capture both of them. Justo was imprisoned in Cork jail for a time, while poor Dorothea was sent away. Having finished a season of Thomas Arne's Arthur's Essays in Dublin just a few weeks before, its Irish premiere, very much his own initiative, Tenducci could well have found himself recalling the words of his own character, Arbaces, fraught with terror as he sings, Amid a thousand racking woes, I pant, I tremble, and I feel cold blood from every vein distill and clog my labouring heart.
A truly virtuoso aria by Thomas Arne. You can understand Michael Kelly's pride at being able to say he could sing it. That vocal brilliance and perfection which one associates with the castrato voice came at some cost, of course, quite apart from the physical and emotional damage men like Tenducci suffered as children. For those few who actually managed to secure a successful artistic career, any social prominence was mostly limited to the stage, and everything to do with that. In Tenducci's native Italy, on the other hand, marriage involving a castrato was illegal and unthinkable, because they were unable to procreate. And consequently, their property rights were limited as well. Legally, they were treated as children. Such laws did not exist in Britain or Ireland because the issue didn't arise. Castrati were such rare visitors and generally didn't stay long, so there was a loophole. Perhaps Tenducci saw a chance for a different kind of life with Dorothea Mournsel than might otherwise have been possible for him. And clearly they had feelings for each other. We can only guess why they took such a risk. Yeah, that's very interesting. It must have been so difficult for him. My reading of the of the story is that he's so impulsive in that you know charming Italian way and heart on the sleeve that he he really believed everything that that, that was happening. And yeah, it must have been difficult for him to be so close to the top of society, having come from very modest backgrounds, a uh, very modest background in in Italy, and then to kind of be in society, but 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 not quite. Maybe it was a kind of stability that he was hoping for and sitting um, in Molesworth Street or wherever they were, um, having lessons together every day. That might have felt very cosy for him and very reassuring somebody who's travelling so much of the time. And then maybe he totally bought into this marriage as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's yeah, it, it is it's quite touching, really. Tenducci was able to free himself from prison thanks partly to being able to give a benefit concert in Cork which raised funds for the court hearing. The father eventually relented. They married again, in a Protestant ceremony this time, but sadly it didn't last. Dorothea sued for annulment in the London courts a few years later. It's a long story. Whatever about his personal problems, concert promoters were always more than happy to have Tenducci back on stage. 
In a year's time, 1767, he was once again in Cork, performing with the Charitable Musical Society at the Assembly Rooms on what is now Oliver Plunkett Street. I asked musicologist Susan O'Regan about musical life in the city at this time. So when Tenducci arrived in Cork in, in late May 1767, the co-performers at the Assembly Room concert were the gentlemen of the Musical Society who interspersed Tenducci's songs with performances of no less than seven overtures, including three by J.C. Bach, the so-called London Bach, who was actually a friend of Tenducci, and overtures by Thomas Erskine, Carl Friedrich Abel, and Thomas Aaron's Overture to Artisars, which was, of course, in production at this time. So that's a very, I think, to me, that's a very good example of an outsider coming in and influencing that repertoire. Um, the, and of course, these activities then would have stimulated commercial activity and local music shops had emerged in Cork by 1769 and other general shops also sold music or musical instruments, musical scores, accessories such, such as strings, reeds. So an advertis advertisement in 1769 in the Hibernian Chronicle announced the arrival of a substantial consignment of Italian concertos, Vivaldi, Corelli, Giuliani, Handel overtures, but by a decade later, they were performing, the, the Musical Society were performing symphonies from the Mannheim School. So it's obvious they were, they were quite proficient if they could tackle the, these types of works. And presumably, I'd say when Tenducci would have arrived, unless he's, well, he may have sent the musical scores on ahead, but they obviously worked these up in a relatively, relatively short time. With the interest in Italian music, inevitably there were other Italian musicians in Ireland at this time as well. Indeed, one of the reasons Tenducci came to Dublin was to work with composer Tommaso Giordani, who'd moved there in 1762 and set up an Italian opera company, performing in the Smock Alley and Crow Street theatres. Some of Giordani's songs even came to be promoted with the strapline as sung by Signor Tenducci. One such air has lasted very well and is still sung by many singers today with its simple words of devotion. My dear beloved, believe me, without you, my heart languishes. This is Caro Mio Ben.
When trying to draw together ideas about a voice from such a distance in time, there's not much to go on. But you can learn a lot about a singer from the material they sang, and especially music that was written for them, in terms of its range or complexity, and also the inner life of those pieces. What does the song ask of the singer? What qualities or colours are being favoured? The singer we've been hearing, Tara Irocht, spoke to me about this process and about how she came to know Tenducci through his music, both Caro Mio Ben, that we've just heard, as well as the arias from Arne's Artaziases. Well, the repertoire he sang obviously made him an amazing storyteller. I mean... There was, of course, poetry and all sorts of things been written at that time, but a lot of the songs were nearly two or three sentence songs that he was singing also in English, not just in Italian. Um, but his ability to word paint and his colour palette was expansive, um, which for me is really interesting because a, hu- a huge amount of what we learn technically as young singers is, is music from that era, from that period. All of these aria antiche, especially for me, Caro Mio Ben was one of the first things I learned. It was one of the things I learned my entire vocal technique upon. This was one of his big party pieces. It's three sentences. It's two and a half sentences, really. <laughs> but he was able to take that and make that into three minutes of beautiful colour, storytelling. Um, And it meant then that I was able to take that same approach to the Italian repertoire as well. I mean, obviously, if you take something like the Arn that's in English and has some of the most difficult coloratura I have ever come across. And I sing a huge amount of coloratura in my general career, but this was so, so different and really technically, I had to be technically proficient to be able to make it work. So his technical facility was incredible. I mean, really, really mind-blowing. I had to spend a little bit of time thinking about that, you know, and thinking about how much effort he must have put in. What I found mind-blowing, he was able to do all of these concerts and sing the same four or five, you know, two arias, let's say, and, and three songs. But people would come and hear them time and time again. Why? Because he obviously always sang them differently. And he must have worked so much with the atmosphere of the public in the room that he depended on what he was getting from the audience that would always change the colour that he sang with. So he was a really brilliant performer along with storyteller, you know, technically unbelievable. um, But his command over the text was obviously spectacular. So I find that I find that really mind blowing. I have to say, you know, we tend to have a lot of um, just people in the world and we think, oh, well, they're great at this one thing, you know, like a one trick pony. They're, they're great at whatever amazing legato line or amazing coloratura. He could do everything. There wasn't anything beyond his abilities. And when we looked through the repertoire and seen what was written for him and what he sang at the time, the composers that knew him, they tested him to the 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 entire elasticity of the instrument. They tested also his storytelling ability. But even the composers that didn't know him, he was able to take everything and make it his own. So that for me was the aim of the game. Not that I would imitate at all, but that I would take it and make it my own. Um, and I, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that, I have to say. <laughs> um, but I, more than kind of stylistic research, it was 
research into the stories and the colours. I looked at other paintings from the time to see what he would have also seen on the street, you know. All of those things that would have affected and um, changed his colour palette. Another favourite song of Giusto Tenducci's, composed by Tommaso Giordani, was an English air, Queen Mary's Lamentation, published at the same time as Caro Mio Ben. We hear the imprisoned Mary Queen of Scots and her desperate plea for freedom. Cry, 
Queen Mary's Lamentation by Tommaso Giordani. A favourite concert song of Tenducci's, widely enjoyed in its time. The sentiment, or should we say sensibility, evidently struck a chord for novelist Jane Austen, who had a copy of it in her own handwriting, no doubt for private performances at home. Giordani forms a fascinating secondary figure in this album, and he was clearly a bit of a magpie, picking up things from whatever interested him. We've heard an Italian and now an English piece by him, and he took an interest in traditional Irish material as well, as we can hear in his pantomime, The Island of Saints. Uh, this keeps happening with the, the research back into, into Ireland. You just keep finding you know, these composers who are interested in the other kind of music in the city. Of course, they're outsiders um, of sorts. If you look at Gemignani, Dubourg, Handel writing down the Irish melody on the back of He Was Despised, and now this. Um, and all of them are firsts. Um, I don't know enough about the, the traditional Irish music scene, but I, you know, I'm always pushing these pieces in, in front of people. So like, is, is this the earliest version of the Rakes of Mallow? Um, like, where does this crop up before? And it's just a, yeah, an absolute romp through all of these tunes that everybody kind of knows. And it's such a surprise to he- hear them in the 18th century context. Um, the Island of Saints yeah, seemed to be a big su- success for, for Giordani. And there's a lot of piano versions of this. So people were playing all of these melodies in their, in their um, salons or their living rooms.
as you hear with a piece like that, music theatre at this time took many forms, from a popular variety work like The Island of Saints to works that might seem closer to what we call opera now. It was all part of a spectrum of urban entertainment, and being in the public eye was open to both praise and satire. Just as singers like Tenducci inspired excitement and love through their singing, inevitably their voices were ridiculed in the Dublin press as well. I asked Alison Fitzgerald how people in Ireland viewed opera during this time. The vogue for Italian castratos also allowed Irish commentators to describe operatic performances and performers as less than manly. And the first printed account of Irish hunting, published in Belfast in 1714, sets up a contrast between the masculine thrill of the hunt and the effete amusement of opera in the city. And in the late 18th century, a few years before Tenducci returned to Dublin for a stretch, the Hibernian Journal published an article satirising Italian opera explicitly. Quote, we hear that a committee for conducting the Italian operas are come to a resolution to apply to Parliament for a fund to erect a castrating hospital, by which means we may be furnished with singers of home manufacture without going to the expense of importing from Italy. No, uh, that level of satire is is not unusual in terms of all forms of fashionable entertainment. And as Martin Powell has shown, it's clear that many metropolitan Irishmen, including patriots and radicals, delighted in opera. And that performances were deliberately tailored to or given alternative meanings for a local audience and by a local audience. So I think the short answer to your question is that opera was enjoyed, it was pilloried, it was referenced in popular and political culture in various ways, and it was very much part of the public sphere in 18th century Ireland. One of the things that must have been exciting for Irish audiences, seeing an artist like Tenducci, would surely have been his links with the wider world of music. During his time in London, after all, Giusto Tenducci had formed a good friendship with the opera composer Johann Christian Bach, the so-called London Bach, and through him met the eight-year-old Mozart. Apparently, Tenducci even gave young Mozart singing lessons. To say you, were, you gave Mozart a singing lesson, I mean, is, is uh, what a thing to be able to say. What a thing that people were able to say that about him, you know? I mean, it's incredible, but it also shows that people knew of his talents also as a teacher. I believe anyone who's a good storyteller must be a good teacher, you know, and any good teacher must be a great storyteller because if you can communicate with an audience, if you can communicate with a student and explain to them in a way that really works for their mind, because universally not every technical term suits everybody, you know, but he obviously had the ability. I mean, Mozart was only a child at the time, but he obviously had the ability to communicate with him, you know. So it also says a lot about his character, I think, that he was able to do that. Tenducci was clearly well respected as a teacher. And in later life, he published a book of exercises for singing students entitled Instruction of Mr. Tenducci to His Scholars. It's complete with a handy page of rules for performers, all good practical advice like keep the voice steady or Give as open and clear a sound to the vowels 
as the nature of the language in which the student sings will admit. Never force the voice. Or, my favourite, scholars should appear at the harpsichord and to their friends with a calm and cheerful countenance. In other words, leave your troubles at the door. We're here to make music, and that deserves all your attention. He always refers to the reader as the student, never he or she. Everyone is made welcome. Talking of welcome meetings, a decade or so after their first encounter in London, Tenducci, Christian Bach and Mozart met again, this time in Saint-Germain, just outside Paris, attracted there by the Maréchal de Noailles and his generous patronage. Mozart was delighted to see Tenducci and even composed something specially for him, as we hear in this letter to his father. Mon très cher père, Monsieur Bach of London is here. He is going to write a French opera and has come to hear the singers. Tenducci is here as well. He's a very close friend of Bach's. He was overjoyed to see me again. The reason I'm in a hurry. Tenducci has asked me to write a shainer for him, for Sunday, a piece for pianoforte, oboe, French horn and bassoon. It's for the Maréchal's own orchestra, all Germans who play very well. I will write more. One thousand greetings from Monsieur Tenducci. Adieu, farewell. I remain your obedient son, Wolfgang Mozart. You get the idea. It all sounds fabulous. If only we could hear this piece that he dashed off for that Sunday at the Maréchal's Palace. But sadly, it no longer survives. However, we do have a Shana, that's a standalone dramatic scene, a combined recitative and aria, that Christian Bach composed for Tenducci at about the same time. This is E ben si vada io ti lascio for oboe, strings and pianoforte, first performed in London in 1778, by Tenducci. It's another moment of traumatic torment. The key words are, I leave you, and I do not know if this farewell will be the last.
The fateful closing words of parting from that Bach aria. Ah, who knows, my idol, if I will ever see you again. With that, we take our leave from the life and artistry of Giusto Ferdinando Tenducci and the Ireland that he encountered on his visits here. The picture we have of him is someone affable, open, who loved music and performing, an artist never afraid to try something new in art or life, a surprising visitor. His start in life and his role in society reflect something of the darker side of Baroque culture, and in his lifetime he would have seen the tide turning against all the things he'd had to suffer. After his death in 1790, the very idea of castrating boys for the sake of their voices, rather than encouraging more women singers in church or on the opera stage, was finally on the way out, though it took its time. In some ways, the legacy continues, and in exploring these stories and music, this mysterious voice continues to haunt us. One thing I was very aware of was there was no way I could or would want to imitate or or kind of pretend to be anything that I'm not. Um, but what I really decided from the outset with all of this project was to commit to the storytelling as he must have done at the time. And I think what, what those men went through was something horrific, just something absolutely horrific. And I wonder, had they spent more time at the t- in the periods working with countertenors and had women been allowed on stage earlier, I think so many of them could have been kept away from the horrific pain of that and the things that we put them through to use them as artists. I mean, it was horrific. And sometimes it did no harm during this project to think about that and to think about what they had to lose to do this. I mean, it was, it wasn't even a choice. Most of them were given it because it all happened so young and everything, you know, and and it was... It was like they were sold into the art form 
almost slaves to the art, you know. He obviously enjoyed it because he loved to perform and he loved to teach and impart that knowledge. So that was the kind of thing that drove me the whole time was to make sure that I told the stories well, that I also enjoyed myself singing it and that I never left myself where I felt there was any kind of technical difficulty. 